2022 ends its third week today, and this edition of Charlottesville Community Engagement is intended to capture where we are as of January 21st. Listeners and readers do not need to know that this is Squirrel Appreciation Day, National Cheesy Socks Day, National Hugging Day, and One Liners Day. But now you do, and that is information you may find useful. I'm your host, Sean Tubbs, and now here's something I hope you'll really like. In the 318th edition of this program, the Blue Ridge Health District hits another one-day record for COVID-19 with 800 cases, a quick snapshot of where the General Assembly was as of this morning, and the Central Virginia Regional Housing Partnership takes a look at missing middle housing. Today's first subscriber-supported public service announcement goes to MLKCville, the commemoration in Charlottesville of the lifetimes and legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. continues on Sunday with the 37th community celebration put on by the Mount Zion First African Baptist Church. Beginning at 4 p.m., a panel discussion will be held virtually on the topic of the urgency of creating the beloved community. Nancy O'Brien will moderate the event, which will feature speakers Bitsy Waters, Sarab Davenport, and Cameron Webb. Community members will be recognized, and the winners of the local MLK essay contest will be announced. Visit and bookmark the YouTube MLK Seville page to review last year's celebration while you wait for Sunday at 4 p.m. The Virginia Department of Health reports another 800 new cases of COVID-19 in the Blue Ridge Health District today. That's the highest one-day total so far. Those cases are among 17,027 reported across the Commonwealth today. The seven-day average for percent positivity statewide continues to decrease and is at 30.9% today. Still very high. Catherine Goodman of the Health District confirmed the numbers and said in a statement to Charlottesville Community Engagement that it is important that people follow multiple mitigation strategy, including getting vaccinated, staying home when sick, wearing masks in public settings. The highest plateau of hospitalization numbers so far continues with 3,836 patients today, according to the Virginia Healthcare and Hospitalization Association. There are 632 patients in intensive care units and 387 are on ventilators. Today, the UVA health system has the most number of COVID patients that at any time of the pandemic to date. That's according to Wendy Horton, the chief executive officer for UVA Health, and she said that there are 114 inpatients today. And of those 114 COVID patients, um, 36 are in our ICUs and six of them are pediatric patients. Some of those COVID patients are asymptomatic and had gone to the hospital for other reasons. We're now in the third year of the worldwide pandemic, and the Associated Press reports some countries across the world are opting to shift their public health strategy towards accepting COVID-19 as a continuing condition, more of an endemic rather than a pandemic. Dr. Kosti Safri is the director of hospital epidemiology at UVA Health, and he cautions against making that conclusion. Many people have predicted the end of the pandemic uh, at various iterations through this, and I think that we're all a little bit concerned that, um, uh, or that we do that we want to avoid doing that prematurely. We don't know what the what things may look like after Omicron. Um, if there's other variants that we'll have to um, have to um, 
deal with. Um, if we may see some of the old variants come back and cause problems, um, that doesn't seem entirely impossible to have, for example, Delta variant come back and, and become a, an issue again. So far, Dr. Sifri said the Omicron variant does not cause as many fatalities per infection. And there are reasons for that that, um, 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 you know, seem to be um, bearing out um, based on studies, um, things like the fact that it may be caused, causes more of an upper respiratory tract infection compared to um, pneumonia or lower respiratory tract infection. Governor Yunkin's Executive Order 2 declared that mask usage in public schools was optional. One stated reason is that the Omicron variant results in less severe illness. Dr. Sifri said it's still a serious issue. Omicron is still really can cause very, very serious illness, and we are still seeing patient deaths. So there, um, and we're seeing them um, almost on a daily basis. Vaccination continues to be a protection against serious disease. The seven-day average for doses administered per day is at 20,915 today. And 68.6% of the total Virginia population is fully vaccinated. And around 2.3 million Virginians have received a third dose or a booster. Horton said it is a misnomer to state that Omicron is not a threat. It does cause quite a bit of disease, especially in immunocompromised uh, individuals. So for our health systems, a lot of strain, especially as Kosti mentioned, on the ICUs um, and uh, caring for those patients, and especially for immunocompromised individuals, um, greatly impacted. Later in the week, yesterday, Yunkin issued another executive order to declare a limited state of emergency to provide hospitals and healthcare facilities with flexibility in the work against COVID-19. For a health system, it really is an acknowledgement of, of where we're at and, and really garners additional resources. I was so pleased to see um, an emphasis on making sure that people have access to vaccinations. So, so that is really uh, very, very important. Horton said this allows hospitals the ability to increase bed capacity and increase staffing. We are very fortunate here at UVA that we haven't had to activate those uh, special accommodations, but it's it's really um, it's really great that we know that we have them. More on the pandemic as it continues. Changes to land use rules are being made across the region to allow for additional density to create what planners and developers refer to as missing middle housing. The term was coined by Dan Paralik in 2010. Uh, his focus is on small units and making them feasible to build in neighborhoods where only large uh, single family houses currently exist. That's Emily Hamilton, a senior research fellow and director of the Urbanity Project at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Hamilton was one of the speakers at the latest discussion on housing run by the Central Virginia Regional Housing Partnership on Thursday. She said that additional flexibility to allow more housing can lead to units becoming more affordable. In some of the cases where we see lots of small infill construction happening, there is that increased flexibility where, for example, large duplex units or townhouses can be built um, in places where exclusively detached single-family houses would have been permitted previously. The recent adoption of the Crozet Master Plan, as well as the future land use map in the Charlottesville Comprehensive Plan, are both intended to encourage the production of these units, and developers have responded. 
However, many community members have pushed back, as seen this week in Scottsville, when community opposition may have led to a deferral of two special use permits. However, Hamilton said this is how houses in communities used to be built. And then historically, um, in an era before zoning, we saw that um, what we would now call missing middle was oftentimes the bread and butter housing of working and middle income Americans because it has lower per square foot construction costs compared to um, a large multifamily building. The topic comes up a lot in the community, and here are two examples I've not yet had the chance to review completely, and hopefully one day Charlottesville Community Engagement will get to both. In the meantime, there are links to the videos for you to take a look at the discussions. The Places 29 North Community Advisory Committee was introduced to the new Middle Density Residential category at their meeting on January 13th. And the Crozet Community Advisory Committee discussed a planned residential community within that designated growth area on January 12th. You're listening to Charlottesville Community Engagement. Do you or someone you know want to find a job in the tech community? On this upcoming Saturday, tomorrow, there will be another Shift Enter workshop in which participants can go through directed sessions with knowledgeable volunteers on resume feedback, interview advice, and perspectives on the tech landscape. For an $8 ticket, you'll have three different interview sessions with people to either have a career conversation, review your resume, or to have a mock interview. To learn more and to sign up and learn of future events, visit shiftenter.org. Today is day nine of the Virginia General Assembly, and we're at the point where the first pieces of legislation have made their way out of committee and await a vote in either the House of Delegates or the Senate. There's a lot of these, but here's at least one of note. A bill from Senator Creed Deeds would allow Charlottesville to levy a one-cent sales tax increase. That's been reported out of the Senate Finance and Appropriations Committee on a 14-2 vote. Senators Steve Newman and Emmett Hanger both voted against the measure. Delegate Sally Hudson has similar legislation in the House of Delegates. It is currently within a subcommittee of the House Finance Committee. And here's the status on some more legislation. First, from the House of Delegates. A bill from Delegate Ronnie Campbell to increase the length of the Maury River's scenic river status by 23.2 miles was approved by the Agriculture, Chesapeake, and Natural Resources Committee. That was on a 19-2 to vote. One of the two to vote against it was Delegate Chris Runyon. A bill from Delegate Tony Wilt to expand eligibility in the Dairy Producer Margin Coverage Premium Assistance Program was reported out of the same committee on a unanimous vote. Delegate John McGuire has a bill that would direct the Virginia Secretary of Veterans and Defense Affairs and the Secretary of Commerce and Trade to examine the feasibility of waiving fees for small businesses owned by veterans. The House Commerce and Energy Committee unanimously recommended adoption. A bill from Delegate Tim Anderson would allow veterans hired by school boards to be school security officers to perform any other duty that they are requested to do. The House Education Committee reported that out unanimously. Another bill carried by Delegate Lee Ware would allow school boards to extend probationary periods for teachers and would appear to make it easier for school boards to dismiss teachers by reducing the period of notice for a dismissal hearing from 10 days to 5 days. 
That was also reported out of the House Education Committee unanimously. A tax credit program for major business facilities is currently slated to sunset this July 1st, but a bill from Delegate Kathy Byron would extend that to July 1st, 2025. The House Finance Committee reported that out on a 20-to-1 vote. Delegate Nick Freitas was the lone vote against that action. And finally, for the House of Delegates, the Attorney General would be required to report every year the number of fraudulent Medicaid claims on a public website if HB 232 from Delegate Bobby Oreck becomes law. The House Health, Welfare, and Institutions Committee unanimously reported that out of committee. And over in the Senate, a bill from Senator Chap Peterson to permit hunting on Sunday reported out of the Agriculture, Conservation, and Natural Resources Committee on a 9-4 to vote with two abstentions. Here are some other Senate bills of note. A bill from Senator Barbara Favola would allow roof replacement projects on public buildings to enter into an energy performance-based contract. The Agriculture, Conservation, and Natural Resources Committee reported that out, and it has been re-referred to the General Laws and Technology Committee. Another bill from Senator John Edwards would remove the ability of the Department of Wildlife Resources to charge a fee for boat ramps that the agency manages but does not own. The Agriculture Committee reported that out and re-referred it to the Finance and Appropriations Committee. Currently, localities with combined stormwater and sewer systems have until 2036 to have replacement systems in place. Under a bill from Richard Stewart, that would be moved up to 2030. This reported out of the same committee on an 11-4 to vote, and the bill will go to the Finance and Appropriations Committee. A bill that has passed the full Senate would add the city of Chesapeake to a list of localities that require an analysis of drinking water. Albemarle County already has this ability. Localities would be allowed to require broadband to be installed as part of a residential development if a bill from Senator Jennifer Boisco is approved. The Senate Commerce and Labor Committee reported that out, and it now goes before the Local Government Committee. Boisco has another bill, to be known as Adams Law, to require private and public higher education facilities to develop anti-hazing policies. This was reported unanimously from the Education and Health Committee, but with one abstention. Legislation is also pending to require the Department of Education to develop guidelines on policies to inform student-athletes and their coaches about the dangers of heat-related illness. SB 161 was reported out of the Senate Education Committee and is now before the Finance and Appropriations Committee. A bill from Shaban Donovan would allow certain pharmacists to dispense cannabis products until such time as retail sale licenses are available. The Education and Health Committee reported that bill out, and it's now been assigned to the Rehabilitation and Social Services Committee. And finally, a bill from Senator Richard Stewart would require cyclists riding two abreast to not impede vehicular traffic, and that passed out of the Senate Transportation Committee on an 11-4 to vote. More legislation? In more podcasts. And that is it for this installment of Charlottesville Community Engagement for January 21st. It is likely that you may be listening to this on January 22nd. There will not be another installment of this program until January 24. There will, though, be an episode of The Week Ahead that will come out on Sunday, but tomorrow there will be no newsletter. This one wasn't going to go out today, but then I realized I was 95% of the way through, and uh, there was something that didn't happen that ended up kind of messing up the whole schedule, and that's okay. 
talking. That's what this information business is all about. I am Sean Tubbs, the host of Charlottesville Community Engagement, getting to the end of another week, as I said. If you support this program and benefit in some way, uh, if you have already subscribed, thank you so much. Uh, it, it, it really goes without saying that this work would be impossible without people uh, kicking in some money. And if you have not done so yet, uh, there's still plenty of time. I'm going to keep doing this as long as people keep paying me. And uh, there's a lot of you. And if you would like to support the program, a couple ways you can do that to a couple easy ways you can do that right now in the privacy of your own home you can subscribe through substack the company ting will match that amount and you can also become a patreon supporter and if you're a patreon supporter you get shout outs which you are hearing in this program uh thank you very much for all the support if you want to recap those particular methods of support go to infoseville.com and click on the support the info tab i'm sean tubbs the host of this program thank you very much and do have a good weekend stay safe and please stay alive